Okay, your hosts are back in their sweet spot. A World War II submarine pork chop movie from 1957. This is the whole reason they started the show. Before they got waylaid by demoralizing films from Japan and Palestine and weird romantic dramedies about Genghis Khan, thank goodness the random numeral generator brought us back to our favorite food. Yum. Get a load of this trope salad. Robert Mitchum is the brand new captain of a Navy destroyer. His tight-knit crew are just not sure about him. Maybe he's a coward or a landlubber. The scuttlebutt is that maybe he's both. Kurt Jurgens is a grizzled veteran U-boat captain, sympathetically portrayed as an anti-Nazi warfighting intellectual of the old school. Maybe he's unstable or drunk or a traitor. Probably all three. It's a game of cat and mouse that the cat is dumping an astonishingly unrealistic number of depth charges on the mouse while he fights like hell despite deep misgivings with the goal of the war. Because he's old school. The one trope buster is that on the sub, the captain and the XO are friends when they should be locked in some tussle for command or sleeping with one another's wives or something. But that doesn't slow us down. Yes, we're wading waist-deep in submarine cliches through most of the film, but it was pioneering in its day and features some of the best naval combat imagery we've ever seen. Certainly better than Run Silent Run Deep, which came out a year later. What do you see when you try and picture the German Navy in World War II? Chances are you don't picture much of anything. And if you do, it's 100% U-boat-based content. Why is that? Like most of World War II, the story starts with World War I. At the end of that war, the Imperial German Navy was forced to surrender and 70 warships were impounded in the scapa flow of northern Scotland. First and foremost, England controlled the high seas. 3,500 merchant ships and 175 warships were sunk by U-boats between 1939 and 1945. In our film today, we spend as much time on the U-boat as we do on the USS Haynes, Mitchum's destroyer escort. Essentially, the two ships encounter each other, and the film follows the protracted battle between the capable commanders of two very different kinds of vessel. The action climaxes with the two ships sucker-punching each other in a mutual knockout, followed by an exciting set piece where Mitchum rescues Jurgens as the destroyer sinks and scuttling charges tick away on the U-boat. It's a pretty amazing moment after these men have struggled against each other, trying to imagine each other's mind, having only their observed tactics to go off of. The Miami yacht races were never like this. Today on Friendly Fire, the enemy below. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that could easily be confused with screwy noises coming from the hydrophone. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Franica. And I'm John Roderick. We watched a submarine film. Felt like getting into a nice warm bath or uh, 
nice comfy pair of shoes. Yeah, it felt like a nice warm bath where suddenly oil is squirting out of pipes <laughs> and rivets are popping. How many shirts did the captain go through? Just one shirt. It, it, he cleaned the oil off of it pretty well. Yeah, that's like a. He must have had like a some kind of 3M coating on that chambray work shirt to uh, to be able to towel motor oil off of it so effectively. I think a big part of it was that he had it unbuttoned so far that most of the oil just went on his chest. Yeah, basically just stopped right above the belly button with the with the unbuttoning, which is I I um I do not have enough body confidence to do something like that. What's that like, John? I uh, I actually went online uh, a few months ago and said, "Hey, everybody! I don't know what the current uh, take on this is, but like, how many buttons can I just not button? Because I, you know, I have this like '50s submarine movie kind of thing going on already. And You're I, a sub daddy. Yeah, I would just I would just like to just have more. I don't know, just freedom of movement, and I got I, I got pr- shot down pretty hard. Everybody agreed that it was you could leave the top two buttons undone, but don't go to a third. Oh, top two! Wow. Well, I'm talking about the, the top a, button and then the next one. The tippy top, and yeah, yeah. Uh, but I also I often go three, and you know, on a hot summer day, when I'm working in the yard or when I'm out in my submarine, yeah, I know it go down. I know four. our pod daddy Jesse Thorne has pretty strong feelings that uh, you don't want to. You want to leave a lot to the imagination when when you're a fellow. Yeah, but if you take a look at Jesse Thorne's chest and my chest in side by side comparison, <laughs> sure, one of them you 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 want to keep buttoned up. Yeah, <laughs> but also he's wearing raccoon coats in the summer. Like I, he's very stylish, but he's not my style guru. Much like a government building has to post a portrait of the president, all shows on Maximum Fun have to have a picture of shirtless Jesse Thorne <laughs> <laughs> above where the recording takes place. <laughs> Uh, this was a weird movie uh, in our history because there are lots of Germans in it, and they're Germans speaking in German accents. Yeah, Germans never really speaking German. They are German actors, right. and they're speaking in very convincing German accents. Like they're dropping Yavol into into their speech, but I guess like my dad does that sometimes when he answers the phone. Sure, but the, they are speaking like this throughout this entire film, and it is very convincing, yeah? Yeah, 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 and 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 uh, and right. We're used to movies from the 1950s having the Germans, e- the German officers, either speak with British accents, right, or being Americans, kind of doing a bad German accent, right, a cartoonish almost. But it does stand out as being kind of like uh, you know, it's uh, yeah, it's a feature. I wonder what the decision making is there. Like, I mean, it seems like the cast that they had they could have just shot the scenes in german and subbed them but that was unusual i think at the time yeah that would have been a really really aggressive choice even when even when you first started to see movies where the where the germans or japanese were speaking in their own language that was that was pretty late in the 70s before that became common hmm i think it was that you the hollywood just had very low expectations of what an audience was capable of right I mean, and also in 1957, what was like 30% of the population actually literate? Uh, well, that and also 30% of the population of the Midwest was still German. Right. Like German speaking and their grandparents spoke German, so they could have gotten away with it. Uh, it's also an unusual movie because we are spending nearly as much time with the Germans as with the Americans. And the Germans uh, are not entirely unsympathetic, like the... 
the captain of the U-boat is has like major misgivings about Nazism and like the Naziist guy on his boat is somebody that everybody hates and rolls their eyes at all the time. He's the he's the comedic element uh in that everybody yeah gives him the like ugh here he comes. Here comes cunt. But but kunst. But also <laughs> he's the if you think about it, he's the only bad guy in the movie. Yeah. There's no oh except for the except for the quartermaster on the American ship that doubts whether the captain is a is a mattress featherer or whatever. Like he doubts him in the a, beginning. A of feather the merchant. Feather a featherman. Merchant. I looked this up and it's like a it's like a layabout, like a, a lazy person. Oh is. sure, he's like feather merchant. Yeah. Selling feathers. Hey, how hard can that be? <laughs> right. Everybody wants feathers. <laughs> that is, that's a storyline that like that really only lasts about fifteen minutes, right? Like we open on just like chill ass hangs on the deck of this navy destroyer in the midst of world war ii like all of the sailors just walking around like having smokes chilling out like hey i heard we have a new captain but i haven't seen him yet he's been locked up in his room must be a real weak sauce (laughs) there's almost more antipathy between the crew and their captain and i'm saying that about both sides than the captains have for each other yeah that seems to be a trope in a lot of these movies and and strangely a lot of submarine movies where the captain initially is distrusted and has to prove his he has to like prove his metal right. to the men yeah uh, but in this case they get they dispatch with that as, as soon as Mitchum arrives on the screen yeah it's like somebody from the studio said well everybody has to be worried that he's no good at captaining make sure that's part of the movie <laughs> like fine you think I take too much? Just enough to sleep. Well, this was based on a book, and I don't know how much that was a plot point in the book. Um, but the book was written by a British sailor and took place on a British ship. So it seems like maybe that was that's a, some holdover that in in the context of this movie seems like, huh, interesting. Okay, let's get past that and on to the, <laughs> like, the thing where Robert Mitchum is total badass. Yeah. There's a magic trick to this movie, though, in that Ben alluded to it earlier, like by making the U-boat crew specifically not that Nazi, it makes it easier to root for them in a weird way. Like I I really had a lot of respect and interest in their survival in a way that I wouldn't have expected in a World War II movie. I like them. I mean, there's two there's two things that happen in the way that's framed. And one of them is that both captains give really long soliloquies at the beginning of the film where they're extremely philosophical and they're just like, well, you know what? You know, war is hell and I'd rather not be doing it, but while we're here, we might as well. Yeah, the the German captain is is nostalgic about the days of war that didn't have the conveniences of technology. Like radar and and you know switches he's the bow hunter that laments the the compound bow era of hunting you know this isn't even fair anymore almost to the level of sedition right it's 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 kind of touchy because he's asking his executive officer like we're friends right i can trust you basically in saying this this like anti-nazi anti-war yeah. Express this sentiment to you. You're, gonna, you're not going to tell cunt about it. Right. <laughs> the differences in their relationships between the captains and the crews were so interesting to me in that 
the German U-boat captain had to tell his XO that they were friends. Yeah. But the American captain uh, was so chummy and polite with his crew, polite in a way that you rarely see in any war film. Like he's saying please and thank you. Well, and every after time giving orders, every time he's like, "Have you got this?" and the sailor's like, "I got this." He's like, "Right on. I'm going to trust you on. You know, yeah. I'm going to trust you on that." It's like, whoa. That trust is never betrayed either. Yeah, like the, right. the Americans are all pretty capable. Like nobody is bad at their job per se. Like there are mistakes occasionally that yield uh, severed fingers, but it's never like, like, like Gary on radar was asleep at the switch. <laughs> I think that has to do with his civilian background versus the, the German captain's military background. The German... U-boat captain is talking about how great it was in World War One, but the American captain was running freight. Right. the the other The other factor that we it, it's like this movie is made in 1957, and that is before the Holocaust was widely understood. Um, it wasn't as clear to people at that time what had happened. There was a lot of um, there was a lot of just denial about it, but also it hadn't been. I'm so glad we live in an area where there isn't denial about that. Well, <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't denial like it never happened. It was the style of it was denial in the form of just we don't talk about it or it, it didn't it didn't come out. And so there was all this um, desire to partly rehabilitate certain Germans as having been good all along. Not all Germans. Right, because we're in a situation where West Germany is now our ally. Yes, all cunts. And, <laughs> and so there's a, you see this in movies of this time where the Nazi character within the Germans is this like clearly dumb or, or doctrinaire person and the others are, you know, contemptuous of him. And that's particularly true of the German Navy which was within the services in the German in the Nazi era the German navy still maintained a kind of aristocratic officer corps and there were fewer nazis in the navy than in any other branch of service hmm i had a neighbor in uh, greenpoint brooklyn who had a very mean dog in his yard a lot of the time and uh I uh, overheard him calling the dog Rommel one time, and I was like, oh, man, who am I living next to? But Rommel was kind of anti-Hitler in a lot of ways, at well, least according to the Wikipedia article. Where I was like, okay. I told my wife, you know, like, we don't have to be that scared of that guy. He was Rommel was part of one of the, the conspiracies to kill Hitler and ended up, um, yeah, Rommel ended, uh, his, well, he died as part of one of those, like, either you take the pill or we kill your family. Wow. But if you bite the cyanide, then we'll treat it like a heroic death. And he did. Damn. But like Eichmann, when the, when the Israelis grabbed Eichmann and put him on trial, that was when the world really started to hear about the Holocaust. And that wasn't until five years after this film. So it's not like humanizing the Germans was... Was Eichmann one of those guys that was in South America somewhere? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's, the, he's the famous Nazi that was like grabbed by the Shin Bet and like stuffed in a trunk <laughs> and then brought back to Israel and put on trial. It was pretty, it's great. I highly recommend that you... 
we'll for, pro- probably watch that movie too. For a propaganda film, though, to not portray the enemy in that cartoonish way you've described, I feel like is fairly new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was radical. Yeah. Is the idea like, okay, we've got, you know, American troops in West Germany now. Like, this is, we're, we're rebuilding Europe and we can't just... We can't just hold a grudge forever against the Germans, so we'll have sympathetic depictions of them in our pop culture to make that transition happen a little easier. I think so. I mean, Marlon Brando starred as a Nazi or as a German, yeah, I guess a Nazi in in a film right about this era. I mean, it took a lot longer to rehabilitate the Japanese all the way into the, you know, like through the 60s, We were they were still inscrutable. Uh, it was in the 70s where you started to see movies that they were speaking Japanese. But yeah, I mean, it's got to be complicated. 1957, and it's like the new enemy is the Russians. I, I Honestly, it's hard for me to get into a 1957 mindset about where an average person, how they would feel about a heroic U-boat captain. Yeah. But I feel like there is, it wouldn't have been, su- it wouldn't have been such a radical stretch. Although we've seen like Robert Mitchum was politically very left. Right, right. Um, I mean, correct. (laughs) Just a little wordplay there. So he was, although we think of him as a kind of just typical uh, uh, Hollywood macho star, he was actually progressive. He was a cuck, is what you're saying. Well, no, cool. He was cool. Like, (laughs) it's okay for us to say the the, the lefty actors are cool. He was the left's John Wayne. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We need a John Wayne, too. Yeah. We need somebody that, you know, unbuttons his shirt. The privilege of anonymity, I mean... I'm looking at Kurd Gustav Andreas Gottlieb Franz Jürgen's Wikipedia page. It's spelled Kurd, but uh, it was spelled... Kurt in this. In yeah, the, he got Ellis Island, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Uh, critical of uh, National Socialism. And in 1944, he was sent to an internment camp in Hungary as a political unreliable. At the age of 30. Yeah. What a label. Politically unreliable yeah. is, the, is the crime. Third column or fourth column or whatever they say about the behind the lines, no good nicks. Can we rely on you? Politically, into the camp with you. I mean, when you think about him, also married to five different women over the course of his life, (laughs) Uh, and they all died in tragic bathtub accidents. (laughs) Uh, But he was thirty during World War Two, or yeah, by the end of the war, and and Robert Mitchum was not much. Younger, he was about the same age. And when you look at the two of them on screen, would you think that they were that they were both uh, like forty? Basically, uh, I think I think the miles on Kurt Jurgens were uh, <laughs> were city miles, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, Mitchum looks a lot younger than he does. Yeah, they were contemporaries. Yeah, but Jurgens plays. He's he's one of those German actors that plays German bad guys in American films. We'll see him again when we watch The Longest Day. Mm. Is that on the list? I'm not sure. The longest day. <laughs> you just I was just like my fists just clenched for a second. Like, what? what? <laughs> this feels like the first portrayal of the philosopher warrior that we've seen in a war film too. Like uh, both of these captains are given a lot of room 
to monologize their their situation and their standing and how neither of them are really into war as a thing like very peaceful thoughtful captains both of them yeah sick and tired of drinking water that tastes like u-boat yeah yeah i think that was whiskey that tasted like u-boat oh was it yeah (laughs) he was like tastes like old shoes gurk (laughs) the one complaint i had about that was that mitchum was always able to see into jurgen's future and although Jurgen was presented as a philosophical and, and really experienced sub-captain of the old school, he never did, I mean, because Mitchum just seemed to be re- reading from his script, and he never did a thing that really made him stand out as like, oh, he's also a genius, until he torpedoed the bat, uh, the destroyer at the end. Right, it really took them a long time to kind of f- work out what each other's game was, and the it, it's interesting because the american captain going into the attack he's like if he's a if he's a good captain in about 10 minutes he's going to surface and shoot torpedoes at us and like clockwork 10 minutes later the u-boat services and shoots torpedoes and it's like that's such a big if like what if he sucks what if he's new like you you right. know what if he waits one more minute what if he's a feather merchant is Captain Morell some sort of savant, though, too? Like, he didn't learn these tricks from humping cargo containers across the ocean. Yeah, he's he's pretty great at it, right? Yeah. <laughs> like... How did he get that good? He's, uh... He's... And he, and he always seems to have, like, a series of checklist items that he needs to... He needs to spray out to all his guys, like, like turn down the motor slowly so that it sounds like we're driving away, but it's really just, like, yeah. we're coming to a slow stop. The, he Doppler affects his ship in a really fun way. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's something being conflated in the script um, because he talks in his long soliloquy, he talks about being a merchant marine and seeing his ship torpedoed out from under him and watching his new bride go to the bottom calling his name, which is like, oh, pretty good origin story, mm-hmm. Batman. Um, and he's like totally, you know, like in a contemporary war movie, that guy would have PTSD and be, and you know, go on a shooting spree, but he's just like, you know, and then and have bloodlust, yeah. like ready to kill the people who took his wife away. And he's just like, ah, you know, we weren't married that long or whatever he says. <laughs> um, but then that guy, Kurt Jurgens knows what I mean. <laughs> at the beginning of the movie, we're told that the reason that he's like, that he's a little sketchy is that he just got a boat shot out from under him, but it's never explicit. And I think the boat that he just had shot out from, from under him was another destroyer. Yeah. So he's been on the Navy side for a while and has combat experience, but it's just not explicated quite enough. The, the distinction between like, I mean, you know, you kind of want somebody to go, how many boats have you sunk? He was a third officer in the Merchant Marine. Is yeah. that another what they say? Yeah. Yeah. I would so, have liked to have known what he was up to in his quarters before the big reveal of him, you know? You contrast this film with Run Silent, Run Deep, though, and that captain also had a similar backstory, but the crew fucking hated him for it. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, this guy's bad luck. He's bad news. He had the last ship he was on got shot out from under him. He's an asshole to all of us. Yeah. But he was like, we're going in this, like, this is a suicide mission. Yeah. And I don't care about you. 
Yeah. Whereas Mitchum's like, yeah, we're just going to, you know, we're playing cat and mouse here. Yeah. There was a scene, I think, after maybe the first attack where, like, a couple of the sailors stop him as he's, like, walking from the bridge to somewhere else. They're like, hey, Cap, how are we doing? <laughs> and he's like, you guys are doing really good. Yeah. Good job. Gold star. <laughs> I really liked that. I feel like that was me, you know? Like, I, I do need to check in with my superiors and make sure we're good sometimes. Hey Jesse, is this? Are we good? Are we good? Is this? Am I? It's a it's a navy ship for millennials. Yeah. How's my hair? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the movies we watch, it's like action, action, action. I mean, if you think about Run Silent, Run Deep, how many different encounters are they having? Like every day, uh, and these guys are patrolling the South Atlantic off the coast of Brazil, presumably. And their job is so cushy that they're like a little bit anxious to get a battle. Like they, they're bored. Sure, they've sat, all these, this whole ship has just basically sat out the war. Like the guys calling him a feather merchant are ironically the guys with the cushiest job in the Navy. Yeah, they've done zilch. And they're, you know, I think it probably in the, in the terms of the day, they don't want to go back to their civilian life after the war and be like, oh, we just sailed around off the coast of Brazil. It was hot. <laughs> you know, they want to talk about some action. Right. Um, but yeah, you think about, you think about what a big role that the, that boredom and the threat of boredom play at the beginning of the movie to, that makes everybody so gung ho. They're desperate for a change just because it is boring. And then they wind up like the battle tactic that winds up being depicted largely in montage. Uh, the captain describes it. He's like, when he when he tells them what they're going to be doing for the next eight hours. He's like, "This is going to be super boring and repetitive, but it's the way we're going to get this job done." <laughs> what he describes as boring and repetitive is the most exciting part of the film, too. That clockwork style depth charging, the incredible explosions that you get that are impressive by modern measure, right. even in a war film. It's uh I don't I, I feel like you see depth charges in a lot of submarine movies but it's the only one I can think of where you actually see how they're launched which is pretty wild this ship has like has like ramps with barrels on them and the barrels are the depth charges and they it's like a like the shells that they're dialing in in fury where they're they're setting right. setting the uh explosive yield or whatever on the tank shells uh in this they're they're setting the depth that they explode at and rocketing him off the back of the ship and there are amazing shots from up in the con tower where you see the entire ocean behind the ship like erupt and we were all like we watched this movie together i think this is the first time we've watched the film together and we were all really blown away by that footage because there's a lot of it and it's fucking amazing <laughs> So just to be a pedant, uh huh, uh, a destroyer like that launches um, depth charges two ways. The ramp style, they're just dropping them off the tail end of the ship. Oh, and they're just running out. But there's not, they're not like shooting them. So what was those were? They're being shot off the sides. Oh, and so they're they're loaded with a shell basically that fires them so they get far enough away from the boat. That right, because you don't want that thing going off too close yeah. to the <laughs> boat dropping them. So there's that, but this was cert this was definitely a movie from an era where Hollywood and the Department of the Defense were very coordinated. And you could go, if you were, a, if you were making a big picture, 
you could go and say, hey, Navy, <laughs> how would you like to go take a, take a destroyer out? And, you know, probably like a surplus destroyer. Right. Load it up with a bunch of depth charges and just drive it around off the coast of, you know, Catalina Island <laughs> for a day, just blowing the shit out of fish. And the Navy said, that sounds amazing. <laughs> One kiloton or two. <laughs> So that so those shots were were awesome, and I get the feeling that they were setting the depth charges to explode like fifteen feet under the water because the explosions were so dramatic. It didn't seem like what it would look like for something to blow up a hundred and fifty feet under the water. Yeah, is it one hundred fifty meters? One hundred fifty meters. Yeah. So yeah, I don't think you're going to get like a fifteen-story tall explosion. But still, I didn't care. I was like, <laughs> "Woo!" Yeah, they. Uh, there's a a big underwater explosion in Hunt for Red October that is really incredible and fun to watch, and you get that level of explosion like thirty or forty times in this film. It's bonkers. You really get good value, and the explosions wise, the actors are like right there. Like yeah. those explosions are going off just off the off the aft of the boat and you get to see Mitchum like reacting to the explosions and stuff. It's really exciting. Well, that was what was crazy, Adam. You and I were talking about some of the shots in this movie. It's clear that Robert Mitchum and and the star actors are actually out on a real destroyer that's really laying down yeah. depth charges. But then a lot of other scenes, not even, not just the action scenes, which you kind of expect to have models if you're if you're gonna blow up a ship right but then other scenes where it's just like well it's just the boat going across the water and it's like clearly in a bathtub there's kind of a there's like an establishing bridge shot that looked to me like it's probably rear projection and it's mixed in there in a way that's usually pretty seamless you don't notice that you're in a studio suddenly but but yeah like Occasionally, you see the uh, you see the ships splashing around in the bathtub, and it's like, oh no! The, oh. the crew play background extras in this film, and during the the quiet moment montage where we pan across what the crew is doing to uh, to take up their time, the captain of the ship is the guy reading the comic book. Oh, oh really? Yeah. No, he was so young. Yeah, he was. Who was the guy reading the Rise and Fall of Rome? Uh, another crew person. Wow. Like they, they sprinkled them in throughout the film. Interesting. That guy, that guy was yeah. very handsome. Right? There were a lot of handsome, handsome, handsome actors. There were a couple of scenes in the U-boat that where <laughs> the men were, you know, the shirtless grease-covered men yeah, were the, arrayed. The German engine room was like a, was, <laughs> was like a fold-out in a... Yeah, they were they were fanned out like a Tom of Finland catalog. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and like really, really set-designed, right? There was somebody on that set that was like, you go here, yeah. you lean against this, you're in the background, like, you know, uh, with your arms akimbo. Yeah. Yeah, everyone was carefully blocked. It was very jackable. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys want to hear a uh, moment of pedantry from the... I, this This is one of those movies that is like, uh, you know, flies on shit with the internet pedants. Right. Uh, there were like four or five different goofs cited just about the scene where they play bridge. <laughs> goofs about the game of bridge? Yeah, like saying, that, oh, like you wouldn't play that card at that moment or whatever. <laughs> 
uh, th- this is not a bridge goof. Um, it says here, during the initial torpedo attack, it is stated that the range is a thousand yards. The speed of the torpedoes is set at 30 knots. The U-boat captain is told the running time for torpedoes will be one minute, 40 seconds. At 30 knots, it requires only one minute to move 1,000 yards. Therefore, even allowing for some additional spread in the range, the runtime could not be anywhere near the stated time. I wonder, though, if... One train leaves Philadelphia at 6 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really felt like... And, and they even discuss it on the film, like the word problemification of the timing of torpedoes and depth charges and distances and depths. Yeah, so the kids listening who are wondering when they're ever going to use this stuff, this is when. Can you, though, reliably... Can you count on a torpedo to maintain 30 knots over 1,000 yards? I bet you there's some fall off. I bet those Germans know what they're doing when they put a torpedo together. You know, I've been to the torpedo museum out here. Uh, and um, <clears throat> John, that's just what you call your bedroom. <laughs> uh, yeah, come on up to the torpedo museum. Let me show you the German technology of the 40s. We're, we're uh, flooding the tubes, as they say. Uh, but, they, you know, those torpedoes were really handmade. They're beautiful things. Um, you know, like all piped and in bronze and really nice uh, or copper i guess are, are we still talking about what yeah, goes all, on in all your bedroom up and yeah yeah really <laughs> and long really like covered with <laughs> copper veins <laughs> ready to explode uh in one minute 40 seconds <laughs> a lot of distance to cover uh, <laughs> They also said that the destroyer didn't have torpedoes, which I think I read is not true of the kind of torpe- of a uh, of destroyer they're supposedly on. But uh, but is that, how like how normal was that that they would be sending ships out nominally to like hunt for submarines that didn't have torpedoes? I was it. surprised to hear that. It, that seemed weird that they wouldn't have torpedoes on it. So maybe it, maybe the pedants are super right there that the boat would have had torpedoes. How normal is it for the captain to relay the description of the ship to the guy with the book (laughs) who then confirms it based on its drawing? Like, I I think the captain should have that book and he should be looking through the periscope and finding the right one. But there he is. He's like one stack. Yeah. A four gun and an aft gun. Two of them. That might be why the Germans lost. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's that's a bad moment to play telephone, I think. There's a scene like that in Red October where they're they're listening to the to the props on the on the Russian sub and like they can the computer can classify what kind of submarine it is and then like it can tell which submarine it might be based on that. And uh, it was cool to see like the old timey version of right. ship identification. Like that scene is really drawn out in an insane way. Like the way his finger traces across, like like what I forget what what the class, but this is like a you know Busby Berkeley class. <laughs> right. That classification is so important because you need to know that other ship's uh, ability with regard to speed, especially right. well, tell and whether or not it has any torpedoes. Yeah, right. Um, I, I, it's I, a Buckley class. A Buckley class. A Buckley class what destroyer a- escort. Which is not really a full destroyer. Huh. 
It's a little bit. It's like a fast. Not really a full destroyer, are you? More of a destroyer escort. <laughs> my wife has uh, been asking what this charge on my uh, on my credit card is for my last business trip. Destroyer escort. <laughs> <laughs> I barely knew her. <laughs> Mr. Ware, set that charge to one hundred. Aye, aye, sir. The, they have different helmets for different guys on this boat. Uh, and I love I love it when Navy guys put the helmets on. Like, that's always a solid look. But there's the ones that are, like, really big and mushroomy. And it, is it because they have hearing protection or is it headphones that they have under there? Those really foreshadow some Death Star helmets. Yeah. There's a lot of Star Wars in this movie. Like, I think early in the score, it sounds really Star Wars-y. A lot of the shots of them at the, like, light tables doing the math on where where the U-boat might be are lit in a way that I feel like they totally aped in in, uh, in the shots in Star Wars when they're, you know, running the X-Wing attack. There was an injured sailor who lost an arm. Also a thing that happened in Star Wars. <laughs> Galaxy brain. <laughs> <laughs> um, they uh, Panda so, Baba was there a couple of times. So those helmets, the big helmets that we're that we're discussing, actually, it is because they are uh, they're over the headphones. So those the the sailors that have those are um, they're doing something loud. Yeah, well, they're doing, and they're also receiving commands via headphone where i think most of the guys you know the captain walks through and he's like all right when i give the order to fire you guys just keep firing until you're out of bullets yeah but those guys are the ones that are like range 40 meters launch uh are they wired in do they have like a cable trailing behind them yeah it's like a in intra ship uh communication system that not everybody you know uh, headphones were expensive you know these guys got to get airpods man Wireless is the way to go. <laughs> I know. Bluetooth enabled. <laughs> um, I thought that the sound design, speaking of sound, was pretty terrific in this movie. There's, uh, there's so, I mean, sound is so important in submarine movies in general, and this is such an early film. You know, like hearing the hearing the sonar from both the perspective of the of the destroyer and from the perspective of the submarine, like hearing it reverberate through the hull. And uh, and all that stuff. It's uh, the it, unique bubbling sound of the torpedoes <laughs> as they're in the water. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it doesn't often call attention to itself, and I feel like for a movie that's this early, that's actually kind of remarkable. Like, I think that the one time I felt like the sound wasn't that great was the final explosion. It sounded a little, yeah, sounded a little M eighty ish. Uh, and not like I mean, and maybe that's a more realistic sound. But as a contemporary film viewer, when I see a bunch of battleships blowing up, I want like really bassy, like aggressive aggro explosion sounds. I was expecting so many more submarine movie tropes than we actually got in this film. But we did get the like, go to the bottom. No, Captain, the ship will crush. Go that to was, the bottom. That was the most significant one. But to actually beach the U-boat on the floor of the ocean, I thought was a totally fun and unique strategy that you don't see very often. We never got the uh, the drowning people behind a bulkhead nope. trope you get it's in true. a sub movie. Yeah. We did get the like the spraying water out of the pipes. Yeah. Which confusingly always happens at a valve 
and the solution is just, just to turn the turn, valve. Turn the valve, yeah. And it's like, whoa, really? <laughs> like, the, it's not really a pipe bursting. It's just the. I have an idea, guys. <laughs> Let's just have one solid pipe all the way across, no valve. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but but then we saw another thing which we never see, which is that the oil pipe right started breaking and oil sprayed all over everybody, which was very dramatic and cool. How much fry oil do you need on a U-boat? <laughs> That's my question. Well, they've uh, they've actually gone to kind of like a cool biodiesel situation sure. yeah. because, you know, like not only is he kind of anti-war, but he's really pro-environment. I was expecting the captain to scream when he's covered in hot oil, though. That was clearly not hot. Yeah. yeah. Lukewarm yeah, oil. Bath water temperature oil. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's true that we didn't get all the tropes and really cool that this movie sort of indicated what sonar is doing better than most. Even Hunt for Red October, you know, you just hear like, bing, bing. But this was giving us a sense. John, that, that's because in Hunt for Red October, they're just using oh, it to, uh, to one say ping yes. Only, right? yeah. One ping only. Uh, but, but in this movie, it's clear that you're hearing the, the repeat of the sonar coming back and it's at a different pitch. Right. And, and that's really, they don't describe it. You just see it in action and you're kind of left to figure out like, oh, I see how this works. And it seems like not just the sonar guys know how to do the math on like when they hear it, they're like, oh, shit, they're going lower. Like the, the captain is already aware that they need to start re- resetting the depth charges when he hears the change like they have the speaker on up on the bridge that he's listening to yeah he does that like pipe it through and then they're all they're all kind of engaged in the all of the decision. piping the sound around this ship just made me so angry at how complicated it is to sound check our podcast when we do it live <laughs> <laughs> three dummies talking into a microphone is much harder to do <laughs> it's only complicated because you bought that crazy box that that uh, I don't know. That is not what is making it complicated. <laughs> something something was driving that sound woman crazy at Sketchfest. Some yeah. some static that, uh, she couldn't get out of the line. Super like proper British sound lady at Sketchfest. It was, it was real like weird. I I felt like I was in trouble at school. She's legendarily mean. Yeah, I've seen her be mean. She before. was pretty nice to me. She was nice, but. But everybody that was working for her was like, ah, Kunst. <laughs> that, uh, that sound design point is really important, Ben, because like, not only does it uh, like work toward the authenticity of what these things acted and sounded like, but it's also a shorthand for teaching the viewer how things work. Yeah. Like you don't need to know how sonar works specifically, but if you can tell that the pace at which the pings are happening is a shorter amount of time like there's an understanding that that's telling the u-boat captain how close the ships are yeah. there's no there's no like turning to camera and explaining how the tech works in a way that you have to get in a lot of war films this movie is all show very little tell yeah yeah you know it's I, I actually went on a tour of a submarine earlier this year and went into the sonar room and the sonar, sonar room had four people in it sitting around in their t-shirts uh -huh. kind of like you would expect and I, I mean i was surprised and i said were you, were you guys hunting akula class submarines yeah we were tied up at the dock oh uh, but they had a bunch of screens kind of like you see in one of these movies not not any more i mean certainly more detailed but still just like monochromatic screens and i said how much of your job 
is seeing things on the screen and how much is seriously like listening on your headphones. They're like about 50-50. We just spend all day listening to headphones and uh, you know we can hear like a big sort of mass of brine shrimp when they go by, but there are certain propellers that have been engineered to sound like brine shrimp. Wow. And so you have, because brine shrimp are like, as they move, they're all clacking, you know, they're little carapaces or like, and when you have a million of them, it's a lot of sound. And you can make it, you can make like ships sound like that. And they're like, you know, we spend, we spend all day listening to whales and shit go by. Like the caterpillar drive in Red October actually sounded like a lot of caterpillars. (laughs) Yeah. Sea caterpillars. Yeah. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that could easily be confused for the sound of brine shrimp. (laughs) (laughs) And when you feed them, they grow and grow. The doctor is like a big character in this movie. He's always kind of walking around and checking in on people. It doesn't seem like he has a terribly busy job on this ship. He has elevated significance as if it were the Civil War. Yeah. Like he is always around and close to the captain in that same way. And smoking a pipe. Yeah. He goes up ladders smoking that pipe, and that just made me nervous every time. <laughs> As a pipe smoker, just like, no, bro. One wrong move, and that thing is going through your soft palate and braining you, you know? <laughs> well, a thing that, stru- that stood out about that doctor and then about also the um, officer in charge of engineering, uh, they were old. Like, that doctor was old. And there were more like officers in their 50s, 40s and 50s on this, in this movie and on that ship than in any other movie we've watched. Is that terribly unrealistic for a doctor though? Well, no, although they had, they were low rank. Uh, The one guy that was mad about the bridge game, he was like a, like a second lieutenant. And the, the, uh, the doctor was like a, a lieutenant like a navy lieutenant which is like an army captain but even even Mitchum I think was just a lieutenant commander so it was strange I I couldn't figure out exactly like is this a thing where we're putting actors who are available in these roles or were during the war were they calling up a bunch of 50 year olds and 60 year olds but giving them navy jobs right uh, because all the all the 24 five-year-old doctors were going into the Marines. Elliot Gould couldn't couldn't make it. <laughs> uh, that was just something that, st- that stuck out to me. Like he was, he seemed like the kind of character that would be back at base with one star and not just out, this is like captaining out, or like, uh, I'm sorry, lieutenanting out on a boat. I keep saying boat, I know it's ship, don't yell at me. Don't at me. They actually, they actually uh, make fun of people that are pedantic about that in this movie. <laughs> Boat, ship, what's the difference? <laughs> like, who honestly gives a shit? It's one of those things. It's what, If a pedant is looking for a reason, that's yeah. something they can onboard. <laughs> I don't know anything about what you're talking about, but I do know it's a ship. <laughs> what I like is correcting the people that entertain me. Um, what is the salt pill that the doctor gives the captain under the assumption that he is perspiring so much in the tropical heat that he is losing necessary salt and his his uh, enzymatic balances and this is something that happens gotta balance those humors yeah so he so I mean you know 
nowadays there's so much salt in food and they're yeah uh, uh, that i don't think it would be a, a captain i brought you a big mac <laughs> but it's basically like a salt lick wow to keep his uh his ph up just like in uh fires on the plane like the finding the salt was like a big come up in that movie yeah that's right that was a big deal can't even imagine well you need you know it was I mean, it's hard to imagine that salt was ever a commodity. I'm going to, like, I, I, I'm I, honestly so curious about this that I'm going to, like, go on a salt fast and see what happens to me. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't, I mean, there wasn't salt in food unless you put it there, I guess. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's so weird. But, but Mitchum was conspicuously the least sweaty person in this movie. Everyone was sweating all the time. Boy, that like, fucking sonar guy was so yeah. sweaty. <laughs> well, and everybody on the U-boat was like, they must have come in with, with cooking oil and just... How did those mattresses them? light on fire if they were all wet? <laughs> those you mattress, shoot enough road flares into them. Those mattresses really did look like sweaty people had been sleeping on them, though. They were, yeah, they were gross. grubby. You know, uh, that's a... A special mix of latex foam and memory foam that <laughs> right. makes an especially careful, careful, plausible careful. deck fire. <laughs> really makes you wonder about the sink and bounce properties of those uh, <laughs> escort ship mattresses. <laughs> don't worry, John. They're an approved sponsor. Oh, uh, yeah, I know, but don't alienate oh. them. <laughs> From my understanding, they have very specific uh, requirements, very specific needs. That's true, but I'm feeling a little salty because yeah. I, I requested pillows and sheets and they wouldn't send them to oh, me oh boy they insisted on sending a mattress instead are you sure you're not feeling salty because you've had two and a half donuts already today it might be that <laughs> that might be contributing to it <laughs> uh, i also had a giant cold brew iced coffee before we sat down and i really need to poop right now so oh dear <laughs> i was wondering how long this podcast would go before someone made a uh, made a, a poop joke and that wasn't even a joke i know that adam <laughs> has one chambered for later so Always do. <laughs> Got to have a little bit of that thing that made Greatest Gen so popular. My depth charges shoot out the aft and uh, not out the side. Uh, boy. <laughs> they roll out the aft. Yeah. They don't have to shoot out. No. They just roll out. <laughs> yeah. What'd you make of the ending of this film? There is an apparent uh, fraternity between semen that we, <laughs> that we get to see. Uh, that I don't think we've ever seen in another wolf war film for this project to the degree that it is one captain helping out another captain and yeah. his crew. And the like American sailors are pulling the German sailors out of the water. They're all like helping each other get away from the two ships before the... Yeah, we should mention the American ship has high-centered itself on the German U-boat. <laughs> Pretty incredible. They both remain afloat. Yeah, and then they, they com the U-boat comically has a spy versus spy bomb. Yeah. Uh, a Cer <laughs> Sergio like Aragonis bomb. Perfectly <laughs> spherical bomb. Is that really a thing? Fuse. That is really hilariously set on a long timer. Yeah. Because we get to watch 10 minutes of high drama with this thing poised to explode. Like such a long timer that the two captains have time to rig up a rope and pulley system to rescue a guy who is just dead in the next scene. Yeah. Like they show them very heroically rescuing this guy and then never show what happened to him after that. It must have been his gaping head wound. Yeah. Well, what happened to him was that they slid him off of that board into the water when they they sung during his funeral, right? Yeah. Wasn't that the guy? That was the same guy. Yeah. Same guy, yeah. Gave him a burial at sea. Was his name Henny? 
No, uh, it was Hassenfeld. Um, uh, Heine. Jürgen. Yeah, Huygens. Huygens. <laughs> was he the XO of the German ship? Yeah, the German sub, yeah. He yeah. was XO. And also had he been was with hugs the captain. and kisses. <laughs> we talked a little bit about the uh, like aside from the like hunky toeheads in the engine room on the German sub. The German sailors all were like kind of dark hair, dark curly hair, like could kind of read as Jewish even swarthier certainly. Um, yeah, and I think it might have just been those were the ones that the guys in Hollywood that spoke German. But yeah, Adam was quick to remark, I think, that the American crew looked more German than the German crew. Yeah. Because they were picking all these surf, surfer actors. Yeah. Boy, that, that blonde guy that was uh, that was blowing it at bridge was like the most Aryan he person sure I've ever laid eyes on. Well, and interestingly, there were multiple instances where there was an African-American on the American ship portrayed in panoramic scenes, you know, sweeping shots. And, you know, the ships were integrated to the degree that black sailors were often used in the kitchen. I mean, they were given kind of shit jobs that were separate, you know, like they weren't, they weren't usually in an integrated gun crew or whatever, but there were a couple of scenes where black actors were portrayed as fighting men and on the ship and not just orderlies. And that was very 1957. I don't think that would have happened in a movie made in 1947. Mm. So that was, uh, uh, that stood in kind of a, and it seemed very intentional, right? right. It, they, it, it happened. The filmmakers were, were consciously doing it. It's interesting though, because like there is like one very conspicuous scene with the black cook who is kind of depicted as being a coward, like slamming the door of his station when he sees the torpedoes go by. Like a little bit of a co comical, like like uh, uh, oh lordy kind of moment. And every speaking role, every every moment that a black actor has a speaking role, he definitely is speaking in a kind of like. We want to confirm some of the stereotypes yeah. that the American movie-going public is bringing to the theater, kind a, of patois. A, cons a conspicuous, <laughs> um, a conspicuous insertion of uh, of like weird comedy. And there were three or four moments where the where there was a a little bit of like lol, um, <laughs> and it was always super corny, and and that that stuff read as as deeply corny. He was in one of the most interesting shot compositions or shot uh, transitions that we got in the whole film, that, that fishing scene where you follow the line into the water yeah. and then you can see the sub below. Super arty. Yeah. Aye, aye, sir. Good luck, sir. Good luck, sir. The end of this movie is, it's the real capper on the whole, there's something different about the Navy. There's honor that's rare elsewhere in war. Well, once the other guy's boat is done, there's not a lot they can do. I guess they could. Well, they sank each other's ships. Yeah. <laughs> like what a crazy. I mean, you know, at the end of the movie, we see an American. We see them on an American destroyer. Right. But it's it could have just been a German ship that came up next, at which point the Americans would have been captives. The idea that the captains would be, you know, sharing a cigarette, not on either side of a brig door. Yeah. Was incredible to me. Like that kind of mutual respect out at sea, almost like like they have their own set of rules. Well, think back to Master and Commander. Yeah. And the kind of, I mean, I think the Navy, 
still thinks of itself that way as a branch of the service that has decorum. Like, you know, ah, the enemy captain, he posed as the doctor. Like, that was a subterfuge that was dishonorable. (laughs) That word is something I want to hit on, which is like when you are sub versus ship or ship versus sub, it feels like there's very few opportunities to do something dirty. Like, there's no dirty pool in that sort of strategy in the way that there can be when it's land force versus land force, right? Do you think that's part of it? Like, there's no, there's fewer opportunities to do something. You can't pour oil all over the field before they yeah. ride their horses onto well, it. After you accept that submarines aren't intrinsically dirty pool. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that when submarines were first invented, navy guys yeah. were like, "What? <laughs> what are you talking about?" Yeah. But once they're accepted, and I think it's because submarines have such limitations. They have to surface. They can't stay down forever. These kind of diesel they're filled subs, with oil. Filled with oil. They suck if you <laughs> die. And the thing is uh, the uh, Mitchum says at one point, like they have as good a chance as we do or a better chance, but that is untrue. Like the vast majority of German U-boat crews went down with the ship there. You know, the bottoms of the oceans are littered with German submarines. Wow. Like it was uh, your chance of dying in that branch of service was was dramatically greater than anything else, including like infantry in Russia. Right. So, uh, I mean, it's, I think probably that the fact that it's just like <laughs> fighting as a sub guy is, is total dirty pool, but also it sucks so bad that like you're give you're accorded respect. When the submarine crew in front of you dies, take their submarine and continue the fight. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great callback. <laughs> This is almost a story that could have been told on stage with like one change of stage settings. Like it is purely a story. It is purely surface ship versus submariner. There is no wife back at home to cut back to right. who's worrying about her husband. There's no dance scene to intercut the, the dramatic there's rescue there's not even like any context given that would make it seem like oh man like this is the battle that like could decide like how the next six months of the war goes because yeah. you know like it's just a battle it's just a depiction of a battle and and even the even the cornball like the the petty officer that's throwing potato peels off the back who's like this captain's a mattress featherer and the guy with the incredibly deep voice who's like yeah, yeah, <laughs> who supports the captain and is generally just like ding dong ding boo boo <laughs> <laughs> like all those little things almost feel like like uh, stage acting where in the world is Carmen San Diego <laughs> is that a is that a reference I should is that like an eight somebody who was born in 89 reference uh, I was born in 83 <laughs> You asshole. I, don't, I, I can barely remember the difference between I, those two dates. I, I told you I learned about e- the existence of years in 1989. <laughs> I think I have baking soda in my fridge from 1989. I guess you guys aren't ready for that yet, but your kids are going to love it. And you, that's a really interesting observation. You could do this in, like, summer stock. Yeah. <laughs> you t- turn, turn this, turn this, uh, the set around, and then you're in the in the U boat. That'd be really cool. Yeah, I would, I would, I would, would go too. You know, you really felt like this was going to be Rickles all the way down, though. Judging from the beginning of the film, I was grateful that the film we got after the first twenty minutes was the one that we got instead of the one that they teased. Minimal Rickles. Yeah, I feel like the moment 
Robert Mitchum comes on the screen, you're looking at a different movie. Totally. Because up until that point, everybody feels like they're acting. Everybody's just like, Herp, we're in a movie. And then he's on screen and you're like, and everybody from then on is playing to him. You know, like everybody improves because there's a guy on stage that's like really a good actor. Yeah. Jergens is no slouch also. Also really great, but 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 at the beginning of the movie when we first see him and we and you know they're playing like Kunst is the is the dumb Nazi and you know there's that's there's like a corny setup there too. Yeah. There are there are about five different scenes where Kunst is doing something very Nazi-ish and the camera just like pans over to give give Jurgens an opportunity to roll his eyes or whatever. Yeah, he comes and tries to give like a Hitler salute and it's too, the, the sub's too low and it's just like, that's not what we do in here, dude. <laughs> the humanizing of the enemy, I think, adds so much to the enjoyment of a war film. Well, because if they were just robotic bad guys, then there would need on the on the destroyer to be some kind of tension yeah. between characters like we saw in, in uh, well, like we've, like we see in other sub movies where it's like, you know, yeah, oh, the XO and the captain can't stand each other. Yeah. Or, right. Like you slept with my wife back in Honolulu <laughs> or whatever the, the beef is because just fighting a, a faceless bad guy is not that interesting. Although contemporary filmmakers have forgotten that. <laughs> you know they just are it's just like oh this is a big budget spectacular we're just blowing up earthworms yeah, sentient if, earthworms if this movie was made now the German submarine would be coming out of a blue portal at the end of the movie no blue, blue portal that's the end of every Marvel film no yeah sorry yeah can't, can't help you you guys haven't seen these uh, these yes. Marvel films guess and I guess I saw them <laughs> I'm not remembering the I blue quit. <laughs> Fuck this podcast. <laughs> I think we need to rate it, though. Yeah, let's figure out if we like this film. At the end of every show, I assign a rating system, custom made for the movie that we've seen. Uh, it is, it's hard to conceive of a rating system for this film that has something to do with anything other than death charges, right? There's so many of them. They're it's a, everywhere. It's a big part of the film. They shot 200 death charges into the ocean. They cut a guy's fingers off, the depth charges. Should it be fingers? Ooh. <laughs> I think he lost all his fingers. There was one finger sticking out of that bandage. He's a watchmaker. The kid's a watchmaker. You're not, and, and Mitchum's like, well, you're not making watches anymore. That scene it's was like, so fucking absurd. The kid's like, well, thanks, boss. I mean, it's fine. <laughs> I don't mind. I'll find something else to do with my the rest of my life, Captain. <laughs> <laughs> the captain needed to save the German captain in order to retrieve any sense of, of of dignity and goodness because when he basically looks at the fingerless crewman and is like, not going to be making them watches anymore, huh? And then walks off stage, he was an asshole, oh. almost irredeemably assholey. <laughs> no, I think that that's another example of like the incredible difference in what the expectation, the masculine expectations of people were. Now that just reads as so asshole. But then it's like, well, no sense in crying. And the yeah. kid like completely accepts it. He's like, oh, well, I'm not going to make watches. I guess I'll make boat paddles or whatever you can do with <laughs> one hand. And and that it was just exactly like stiff upper lip because the, like the only guy in the film that get ready to it. do some fisting, son. <laughs> I guess I won't be able to crank it with, quote, the stranger. eh, Captain. <laughs> burp it up. Burp it up. <laughs> 
But if he, it, there's one guy that loses his shit on this movie, uh, in this movie, and it's a and it's a guy on the U boat who who loses it and wants out or whatever the submarine guy that's going to freak, and uh, and the captain defuses him, and then in the final scene or when they're singing along to the to the anthem. Everybody's joshing with him and like, ha ha, you didn't just freak out and threaten us with a, with a wrench. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of that. Nobody came out of this war and complained to their family about how sad they are. Right. That guy yeah. misses missing the fingers. He never talked about it and nobody in his town ever asked about it. Right. It was just like, oh, he's oh, oh, no fingers. All right. Well, I'm convinced we're rating this film on a scale of one to five fingers. <laughs> <laughs> dismembered fingers. Oh, one to five dismembered fingers. Uh, I had not seen this film before today. Had you? I'd seen it, yeah. Really? Uh, I was I was blown away by it. Easily one of my favorite submarine films, if not one of my favorite war films. It was great. I'm going to give this four fingers. Wow. I, I really like it, too. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll match your score. Um, I think the... It's really beautifully shot, beautifully sound designed. Some of the performances are really, really tremendous. It's really worth watching. Four fingers. Wow, four fingers. Uh, I, this is the exact type of movie that I expected we would be doing this show about. When you guys came to me and were like, let's do a podcast about old war movies, this is it, right? Black and white. Um, yeah, well, we thought we were going to do a podcast oh, about war movies, but you have made it a podcast about the podcast you thought we were going to be making because you bring this up every episode, John. Well, sometimes I bring it up and say, this is not the kind of movie we thought we were going to be watching. And I just said it was in black and white, but it's not. No, it's not. But it, it's. I remembered it being in black and white. I was surprised when it was color when it started. When and it very desaturated color. It's though. in Technicolor, right? Or what is it? What was it? You were commenting that they were using Bausch and Loam lenses, which was interesting. Yeah. Cinemascope. That was in the credits. Yeah. Um, so it feels like a black and white movie. You do see models, but you and like and deluxe color. You see fire. Uh, you see like flames on the water that are clearly the wrong dimension of flames we've seen fire we've seen rain that's right we've seen lonely times that i would not come again or whatever uh. i don't know all that <laughs> james taylor uh so i love it for all those reasons and i like the long soliloquies i love robert mitchum i love uh uh jurgens um so yeah I'm, i mean i'm even gonna because i don't want this to be if anybody's keeping these ratings on a spreadsheet I don't want this to just sink into like a four star general, like you guys are, are just kind of too wimpy to give things bad ratings. So I'm going to give it four and a half stars. Whoa. One of the highest scores this show has given a film. And, and I don't think that it's, I don't think it's among the best movies we've watched. Yeah. I just feel like it is the, it's a er war movie. Yeah. And, um, and so in, within the context of this show, I feel like it's got to get, uh, it's got to get a little flag planted on it. Man, pretty good. So many characters in this film. Uh, did you have a hard time finding a guy? I feel like my guy's got to be Kunst. 
<laughs> he's John. Oh no, he's hilariously like that's gonna. There's gonna be a torrent of one star reviews on our, <laughs> our Apple podcast. You know, I've been listening to these guys for a while. Didn't really put it together that Roderick was a Nazi. He's been a Nazi this whole time. Always waiting for his chance to pick the Nazi. <laughs> I mean, he's such. He's the only bad guy of this movie and he and the americans don't even know about it. <laughs> he's the he's the bad guy to the germans uh within the within their own boat and but it's the existence of of kunst that does more to humanize the captain than anything else you need the contrast yeah he's, because he's the salt that brings out the sweet that's right without <laughs> kunst the captain is just like a guy that's tired of war yeah. You're Nazi salt, John. Yeah, well, you know, I actually have a salt collection. I do have some Nazi salt. It's very expensive. Um, so, yeah, I, I, he's my guy because of that. It says, not sea salt. Not sea salt. Oh! Uh, I, got, I looked it wrong on eBay. I, thought it was, I just thought that was a misspelling, like a Craigslist misspelling. So, yeah, uh, I, I feel like he's the thing that uh, that without that character, you just don't have the the same respect for the captain, and and you know his character is there is exactly repeated in Hunt for Red October. There's the there's the doctrinaire Soviet guy that they have to figure out a way to deal with, but uh, but Kunst reveals himself to be the only coward on the ship too. Of all the officers, he's the only one that says, "Let's surface and surrender." Yeah. And the rest of them are like, no, let's keep in the fight. So he he's a he I think he's key. He plays a key role. Uh, I also picked a German for uh, for my guy. And I picked the Anton Yel- Yelchin looking guy that has the panic attack because this like people are so even keeled in this movie. Like nobody like this movie has nothing to do with feelings until that guy has that freak out. Like, like he is the only person that gives any evidence of having an emotional, like an internal emotional life that bubbles to the surface. And I was like, yeah, you're not wrong, dude. This is really scary. I'd be grabbing a wrench and freaking out too. So he was my guy. It's true, right? No one shows any real feelings. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Adam? Uh, my guy was Lewis, the sweaty sonar operator. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for one scene in particular, like he was competent at his job. He had that interaction with the captain where the captain's like, I'm going to need you, Lewis. I'm going to need you on that sonar. I'm going to need you to save my ass at some point. Can you do it? And Lewis is like, sure. And then they cut to Lewis like a half an hour later. Lewis is in his rack taking a nap. <laughs> and he's got like his intern working the sonar. <laughs> and then as soon as the captain calls down, Lewis hops out of the rack and gets back on. Like, th- I love that bit of manipulation from him. That is That's super a- pranica yeah, move. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anything for you, sir. No. <laughs> I'm going to catch some Z's. <laughs> Well, uh, at the end of every episode of Friendly Fire, of course, we pick the next film we are going to watch via random selection. And uh, John, Adam did a big amount of work uh, since we last recorded where he sat down and added like... 80 films or something to the wow, list. Wow, Adam. You found a you found an article in Paste magazine, I believe, I did. that uh, was their top 100 war movies. Some of them were already on here. 
That um, seems like a weird thing for paste. To I thought do. so too. Yeah. Uh, recently or a long time ago? It, yeah, it was uh, right next to the Believers top 100 porn movies. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why they did that review, <laughs> but yeah, it was uh, it was paste. Huh. And they they had fairly substantial uh, summaries of all the films. So, you know, pa- Paste was one of the uh, one of the mainstream music magazines of the indie rock era that really loved the Long Winters. I have to give them enormous props. They supported us uh, a lot. I'd say that it's like only second in prestige to the Atlantic's top one hundred Viewmaster discs. So, I mean, pretty cool, pretty cool list. And I, uh, I'm glad we waited for that joke. <laughs> Fuck you. Thanks. That was great. Thanks for making sure to get that in there. <laughs> I fucking hate you guys. It's so much fun doing the show face to face. Maybe we could have some interstitial music there. <laughs> hey, Rob, do me a favor and cut out every time John talks about his fucking music career. <laughs> uh, Don't you dare, Rob. <laughs> the, you mean the believer is responsible for all the success we see here in right. your house? <laughs> the believer is responsible. I have more than one distortion pedal now. <laughs> the list is 163 films long wow. at this point. John, do you want to uh, toss a number out and we will find out what we're going to watch next? Yeah, I'm going to really fuck with Adam here and pick number four. <laughs> number, but, f- but it's randomized, so could be anything. Number four is a 1946 film directed by Roberto Rossellini, the World War II film called Paisan. <laughs> Oh, is it in Italian? Uh, I assume if it's directed by Roberto Rossellini in 1946. Interesting. Paisan, the Mike Piazza story. Hey, Paisan. Well, that will be the next film that we watch here on Friendly Fire. In the meantime, for Adam Pranica and John Roderick, I've been, unfortunately, Ben Harris. <laughs> to the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fires, a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is edited and produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our podcast art is by Nick Dittmore. If you'd like to support Friendly Fire, please visit MaximumFun.org donate. And if you feel like joining in the conversation... Head on over to Facebook or Reddit. We've got groups there. If you're on Twitter, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Listen to me. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.